Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name is David, and I am the small groups director here at Severn. So occasionally, I get the chance to be up here and preach. So if you're here for the first time, I'm the guy that you get to hear instead of the main guy, which happens every time when you visit a church. Um, but it's great to see you guys. Great to have you here. And uh, we get to continue our series called Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at the life of David. And even though this is week three in the series, uh, this is the first time we're actually going to talk about David. So that's pretty cool. And since my name's David, I guess that makes sense. But uh, what we're going to look at today is a day in David's life, uh, really th that completely changed his life. Uh, we're going to look at the day that David uh, was anointed as king of Israel. And as we're looking at this, this day in his life, we're going to address a question that I think is extremely important for all of us. It's a question if we get it wrong, uh, can kind of derail, completely ruin our lives. And the question is simply this. Who are you? And not just, we're not just going to look at who we think we are, you know, who we feel we are, but we're going to look at, more specifically, who are you in God's eyes? And to do that, uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read the whole thing on the front end, and then we'll just kind of, we'll kind of go through it. So go ahead and read this. This is 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees. For man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all your sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. And he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said to him, Anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Uh, so this part of the story picks up uh, right after Saul, who you heard mentioned at the beginning, was rejected as king of Israel. And Pastor Ryan looked at that last week. And then this week we're looking where God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem and meet this guy named Jesse and anoint a new king. And initially we see, you know, Samuel's kind of nervous about that because you don't have to be a historian to know that kings don't really appreciate it when you anoint other kings while they're still around. Uh, so God says, go ahead and take a sacrifice, that'll be your cover. So Samuel goes and he meets this guy Jesse and starts looking at his sons. And the first one comes by and Samuel sees him and he's like, oh, this is, has to be the one. But God says, nope, that's not the one. And then through all seven of Jesse's sons, they're there. Same answer. Nope, 
nope, nope, just keep down the line. So Samuel gets obviously a little bit confused and is kind of just like, wait a minute, are these all your sons? And Jesse's answer is kind of funny. He's like, oh, they're still the smallest, but he's watching the sheep. You know, in other words, there's one more, but he's really not that important. I didn't even invite him here. Um, so they, they, of course, go get David, bring him to Samuel, and lo and behold, it's the shepherd boy who's going to be king. And this story is so interesting, and there's, there's so much in it that's, you know, relevant to the whole narrative of Scripture. Um, but there's, like, kind of an obvious thing that's sort of strange, which is, you know, at least this stuck out to me. It's, why didn't God just tell Samuel, go to Bethlehem and anoint David, son of Jesse? Like, what was with this whole, like, dramatic game show approach where he just one by one goes through all the sons and then finally finds the right one? Like, what was the point of all that, you know? And basically, God explains the reason for this whole rigmarole he put Samuel through uh, in verse 7. He explains that whenever he shows us the reason for this, when he explains why he didn't choose the strongest or the oldest or the biggest or most impressive son, when he says this, in verse 7, the second half of it, he says, man does not see what the Lord sees. For man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And what God is showing us here through this is something that's vitally important for us to understand. It's God is showing us how he sees people, how he sees you and how he sees me. And this brings us to our, our first main idea today, which is that God sees you as you really are. So that can be an intimidating thing to know. <clears throat> but as, as I was preparing to preach this message, I was actually thinking through you know, how I've typically heard this passage taught on it. Maybe you've heard, this, heard it taught this way as well if you've been in church for a long time. And it's not a wrong way to teach it, but so often we, we'll focus on the idea that you know, we as people are very easily distracted or you know, deceived by appearances, by externals. But God focuses on internals. And that's very true. And we are easily distracted by externals. We might be the most externally focused culture ever. However, I wanted to look at kind of a different aspect of this same, this same verse. Um, and just a vitally important aspect of this idea. Because when, when it says that man does not see as the Lord sees, man sees what is visible, but God sees the heart, What's being contrasted isn't simply externals versus internals. It's contrasting God's perspective versus our perspective. It's contrasting basically what God is able to see versus what, and how different that is from what we can see, what we're not able to see. And the reason I think and thought this would be important to focus on today is because we live in a culture, while we're distracted by externals, we're also overly obsessed with looking into our own hearts to discover who we are or to try to create or find an identity for ourselves. We're actually told, you know, hey, the way you, the way you get an identity is by looking into your own heart, so seeing your desires that are there, and then express them to the world around you. So basically, we're inundated with the idea that man can, in fact, see the heart. And not only can we see it, we can perfectly interpret it and then base our life off of that. And, you know, if, you know you've probably, it's hard, you're hard-pressed to go more than a couple days in our society without hearing the idea to look inside yourself, just be yourself, follow your heart. You know, those are kind of the, the mantras. And really, the, if you were going to list commandments in our society, the number one commandment is probably be yourself. You know, and this actually has a name to it. So, um, sociologists call it um, expressive, indivi- excuse me, expressive individualism. And it's this idea that, you know, we're talking about here where you have to take your desires and express them to the world around you. That's how you find your identity. And it's so common in our culture that it can really impact the way we think and the way we operate without us really no- noticing. Um, to kind of give you an example of how, you know, subtle it can be, because you might be thinking, well, I don't do that. I don't, I don't adhere to that way of living. Uh, just to give you a personal example from my life, um, I know this about myself. I have a desire in me to be in the know, you know, to be a person who, who has answers. 
And why this is so dangerous is, you know, it sounds like a nice thing, is that it can transform the way that I look at this book, the way that I go to church, and I can actually use the Bible to just be a person who has answers, be a person who's in the know, versus actually letting this shape my life. So that's how subtly this can sneak in, in case you're hearing this and you're like, oh, I don't do that. Um, because it's always in front of us in our culture. And uh, I just want to do a thought experiment with you guys. wasn't sure if I was going to do this, but I'm, we're going to do a thought experiment today. Um, so just imagine, just to kind of see how prevalent this idea is in our culture, imagine that Disney decides that they're going to do the story of David. And they're going to take some creative liberties, of course, but, you know, coming December 2021, Disney's David. And this is obviously hypothetical, but this is based off of other Disney movies I've seen. But this is probably how it would go. This is my best guess. You can have your version. This is my best guess of how this would go. Movie would open up, and Jesse would be telling David, you're a shepherd. That's what you do. That's who you are. And David would be out in the field, kind of dejected with his harp, and would break into song, because it'd be a musical. And he'd probably, talk, <laughs> he'd probably be talking to his sheep, and they, they might be talking back. It's a Disney movie. And he would sing a song about how he has this deep desire to be the greatest musician in Israel. He wants to be the greatest harp player ever in Israel. That song would end kind of abruptly when a messenger shows up and says, Samuel's here. He has a message from God for you. And me old Samuel would say, God has decided that you are king. And of course, David would have this tension. You know, I, I'm like, it'd be, there'd be ups and downs through the movie. And am I a shepherd? I'm like, I don't want to be king. I don't want to be a shepherd. I want to be a musician. And eventually a sage sheep or some other talking animal would tell him, well, what do you want? What... Like, what's your deepest desire? And his, his answer would be, I want to be the greatest musician. So, of course, the movie would end in some huge concert, you know, harp solo, boom, happy ending. And uh, that would be just the kind of uh, the ridiculous reason, for, or the reason for that ridiculous uh, thought experiment is just to show you how inundated our culture is with this way of thinking. You know, that would be a happy movie. We would love that movie. But that's, you know, that's Frozen, that's Moana, that's, and it's not just kids' movies. It's just, you listen to sportscasters, you listen to anyone who's talking on television, it's be yourself, look inside yourself. And the reason I think this is important is because, to talk about it, is because there's major problems with that way of thinking. Problems that will leave us with a, well, we'll miss the mark in our self-understanding, and that can lead us to really ruining our lives. And there's many problems with it, but some of the most obvious are that, number one, our hearts play tricks on us all the time. You know, this passage says, Man doesn't see what the Lord sees. The Lord sees the heart. We, don't, we can't see in there. And the Bible would describe the human heart as more deceitful than anything else. And if you've been around for any period of time, which most of you have because you're here, um, you know this from your life experience because how often, if you're trying to use your desires to form your identity, how often do your desires change? And how often do your desires conflict with one another? And how often when you've pursued them to their end have your desires proven to be bad for you? So when you'd use that to try to form your identity or to try to think through who you really are based off your desires, you're left with an identity that is incoherent and very fragile. But beyond that, not only will our, our hearts mislead us, but they'll condemn us. Because whenever we try to build an identity based on our desires or by looking inside ourselves, it's only a matter of time before it crushes us because what happens is we end up latching our identity onto one of the main things, like I'm a family man, or I'm, I'm a morally good person, or I'm a career person, whatever it is, we latch onto that. And then what happens is our sense of self and our sense of worth will rise and fall based on our performance in that area, or based on how approved we are by others in that area. And um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, psychologists, like not Christians, just psychologists, are catching on to this idea. Um, in an article in 2018, in the publication uh, Scientific American, 
psychologist Steve Ein, he says this. He says, yourself lies before you like an open book. Just peer inside and read. Who you are, your likes and dislikes, your hopes and fears, they are all there, ready to be understood. This notion is popular, but is probably completely false. Psychological research shows that we do not have privileged access to who we are. When we, try to, when we try to assess ourselves accurately, we are really poking around in a fog. <clears throat> so basically, us looking inside ourselves to try to determine who we really are is in a weird way us trying to play God. It's us believing that not only can we see clearly in our hearts, but that we can interpret it perfectly to determine our identity. And again, it leaves us with an identity that's incoherent, an identity that'll crush us. So what we need is to go to the one who sees us clearly. We need to go to God and to his word, which in James, God's word is likened to a mirror. And it's not just for your face to be seen in it, but it's a mirror to show you who you really are. And probably my favorite way I've ever heard this, uh, heard it summarized, how God's word would, would describe us. Now, it was a pastor who put it this way. And, you know, God's word, the gospel, shows us that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved than we ever dare hoped. That's how God's word would describe us. And if God is the only one who can see our hearts clearly, not only do we need to go to him to see who we are now in our current state, but we need to go to him to see who we should be. Because just consider for a second, you know, how did David know he was king? It wasn't because he decided one day he felt kingly. It wasn't because he had a desire to be king. It was because God chose him, God had him anointed, God gave him his spirit, and God made him king. And we read this in verses uh, 12 and 13, where it says, Then God said, Anoint him, for he's the one. So Samuel took the horn, horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. And this uh, takes us to our second main idea today, which is number two, that not only does God sh um, uh, see you as you really are, number two, God makes you who you ought to be. <clears throat> and that idea can ruffle our feathers, for sure. Uh, maybe you're, you hear that and you think, you know, like, who is God, who is anyone else to tell me who I ought to be? You know, that's my decision. Only I get to decide that. And I understand that. Again, that's very much a common way we think. Even if you wouldn't say that outright, um, that'll ruffle your feathers whenever you uh, come up against something that God says that's really different than a core thing you hold to, and you realize that you're not on the same page with God all the time. So that'll ruffle our feathers, but... Uh, one thing I would like to just point out, just a, if I could have something as a goal, if you, if you think that way, that you're the only one who can decide who you ought to be, uh, would just be to show you that um, you already have people you're listening to outside of yourself, authorities you're listening to outside of yourself, to determine who you ought to be. For example, again, just to use our culture all the way through as the example here, you are told right now that you ought to follow your heart. You ought to determine your own truth. You ought to be comfortable and happy. And you ought to be the final authority on who you are. And not only that, but whenever you're filtering through and sifting through your, your feelings and desires to determine what's good and what's not, and who you really are and what's not you, you're going to use a filter that's been given you by your culture about what's acceptable and unacceptable feelings or desires. So I just want to point out the whole idea there, the whole reason for going through that is to show that even if you think you're t you should be totally self-determining, you got that idea that you should be self-determining from someone else. So you didn't determine that for yourself. 
So we all have an authority or authorities that we're listening to about who we ought to be. And what I just want to sh- show as clear as day is that God is the only good one. He's the only one worth listening to when it comes to who we ought to be. And if we look at this story of David, we see a pretty compelling argument for why that's the case, why we should be okay with him determining our identity and setting the course for us. And that's because what God has for us blows anything we could ever imagine completely out of the water. Because look at David's life. How did that look in his life? So he's the youngest of eight sons. He's a shepherd. And God takes him and makes him a king. But not only that, he gives him his spirit. It says the, Lord, the spirit of the Lord controlled him from that day forward. And not only that, but years later, Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, would be born through David's lineage. Like, do you think David could have ever imagined any of that for himself? So no matter how badly we want to be in control of our own life or who we ought to be, what God had for, has for us is so much better. Not necessarily easier. I was reading a commentary that said that once this happened in David's life, that's kind of when the problems started happening in his life. So not necessarily an easier life, but a much better life. But odds are you're not going to be the king of Israel or the queen of Israel anytime soon. So what does this mean for you? You know, what does this mean for me? And if you were to sit down with David and ask him, what was the greatest part of this new identity that God gave you in 1 Samuel 16? First, he'd probably be like, what's 1 Samuel 16? I don't know what you're talking about. But uh, <laughs> what, he would, what he would say, he wouldn't say it was becoming king. He wouldn't answer that becoming king was the best part of this. His answer would easily be it was receiving God's spirit and the closeness of relationship that that brought him with God. And you can see this by looking at David's life or reading the Psalms, but multiple times in the Psalms, David describes, he says, he describes God this way. He says, God is my portion or God is my inheritance. Saying that of all the things David got, whether it's being king or the power or whatever, the thing that mattered the most to him, the thing that meant the most and was the most central to his identity was the fact that he got God. And then he had a relationship with God. And, and that's a good thing that that was the case for David because there'd be a time in his life where his son usurps the throne and he would lose the kingship for a time. But since his identity was in his relationship with God, that even in those most difficult times, he still knew who he was and he could still go back to that same God who was his portion, who was his inheritance. And what's so amazing for you and I today is that in the New Testament, in Ephesians, we read that that same inheritance, that exact same spirit, and that exact same relationship with God is available to every single one of us through faith in Jesus. And not only is is that what's available to us, but we're able to be adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, meaning that we would have a a sense of self and a sense of worth that would be completely unshakable, regardless of our circumstances. Because uh, like like this idea that God makes you who you ought to be, it's not that God just tells you who you ought to be, which is what every religion and every other worldview will will tell you. They'll say, hey, this is who you ought to be. But God doesn't just tell you, he makes you who you ought to be. Through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, through faith in him. And if, excuse me, I need to get a drink. But if we see that God's the one who really sees us as we really are, and he's the one who makes us who we ought to be, and we see that in David's life, there's still a part of this we haven't really looked at or, or really addressed, which is what is it that God actually saw in David when he saw him as he really was? What, what was it that he saw that set him apart from Saul or set him apart from his brothers? Because I think it's important to be clear, David was not perfect. 
He did not have a perfect heart, but what he did have was a humble heart. And this, again, is something you can see through David's life. If you were to see his highs and his lows, you see a humility there, whether things are going well or things are going poorly. And probably the easiest place to see that is earlier in Samuel, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And whenever Jesus describes his own heart, aka the heart of God in Matthew 11, he says that he's gentle and humble of heart. So if, if we are going to be made into the people that God would say that we ought to be, then we also need a heart that is humble. And we see this all through God's word, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The story of David and Saul, kind of back to back, Saul was last week, David's this week, a perfect illustration of that. You know, Saul was the king, became proud. He was rejected as king. Humble shepherd boy David is exalted to king. And it's all through scripture. And actually Jesus in uh, Luke 18 told a story that, that was pointing out this exact same thing. He's telling a, he told a parable about a Pharisee and about a tax collector, which if you don't know, a Pharisee would be like the most straight-laced good person you've ever met, gets everything right. A uh, tax collector would be like the biggest lying, cheat, you know, traitor to his people kind of guy you've ever met. And this is what he said. <clears throat> so Luke 18, verses 9 uh, through 14. He, Jesus, also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. What a great prayer. Could you imagine if someone in your small group prayed like that and like called you out? <clears throat> But the, uh, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And just in that little parable, you see, a Pharisee whose identity is wrapped up in his moral goodness, or at least in being perceived as a morally good person. And you see a tax collector who sees himself as God sees him, as a sinner in need of a savior. And Jesus says that guy, the tax collector, is the one who leaves right with God. Because, like he says at the end there, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. So that obviously leaves us with the question is, how do we get a humble heart. Because I recognize these two main ideas today, that God, not you, sees you as you really are, and that God, not you, makes you who you ought to be. Those take a lot of humility to accept and to actually live out in. So how do we get a humble heart? Because you can't just try really hard to get a humble heart. That would literally make you arrogant about how hard you work to become humble. So, you know, it's kind of a question that sounds like a riddle. It's not really a riddle. The answer is that we need to begin, each and every one of us need to begin to see ourselves as God really sees us, not by trying to look into our own hearts, but by looking at Jesus. And I'm actually going to um, call up the worship team, and we're going we're gonna to close down here. <clears throat> but, uh, but this story of David's anointing, it's pointing forward so clearly to Jesus. It's pointing forward to another unexpected king, born in Bethlehem, who wouldn't just be a king, he would be the king of kings. And it's pointing forward to another shepherd who wouldn't just be a shepherd, he'd be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. 
And when we will look at Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, when we'll look at him, we'll begin to see ourselves more clearly. Because just like we mentioned earlier, when we look at Jesus, we'll see that we are more sinful and more flawed than we would ever dare admit or believe. Because it took the death of the Son of God to make you and me okay with God. And that's why, to me, like being an arrogant or prideful Christian makes no sense at all. <laughs> the core belief of our, of our following of Jesus is that it took the death of the Son of God to make us okay. We, that should humble us. I don't know how we could walk around prideful about that. But beyond that, in addition to that, at the very same time as that, we should be able to look at Jesus and see that he loves us enough and values us enough and sees us as worth dying for. And that sort of undeserved, completely out of this world, love should also humble us. And it's through that death, through that resurrection of Jesus, that when we humbly put our faith in him, that we're brought into his family, and we're given a heart that is, that is right and clean and doesn't have to be afraid of being seen as it actually is, and we're actually made into the, what we ought to be. We're made into people or a people who are made right with and reconciled with our Creator. And when we're brought into God's family, uh, it kind of made me think, you know, thinking along that idea, it made me think of, of a day years later, after this story we just read today, when Jesus would have a very similar day to what, what David just went through. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River when he was here, he was baptized, basically anointed through baptism, and then God's Spirit descended on him. And then God the Father spoke, and what he said was, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Or and some translations will say, in whom I delight. And what's incredible for us is when we've put our faith in Jesus, those words are true of us. That you become a child of God in whom he is well pleased, in whom he delights. So the question I just want you to kind of leave here with today is who are you in God's eyes? How does God see you? Does he see one of his children in whom he's pleased because you put your faith in Jesus, not because of anything you've done? Or does he see someone who's lost, still trying to find their own way, still trying to go their own way, still trying to make themselves who they think they should be? Because if you are still lost, you don't have to stay there. The invitation is there for anyone that this story is pointing forward to, to this Jesus. The invitation is there for anyone to put your faith in him and to be made a child. And if you are one of God's children, who he's pleased in, do you live in reality, in that reality? Or are you constantly feeling insecure and unsure of where you're standing and, and continually trying to put your you know, hope in other things or build your identity in other things? Or are you actually living in that reality? So my prayer for us today, my hope for all of us today, is that we would begin to see ourselves a little more clearly, a little more like God actually sees us through putting our eyes on Jesus by looking at him. And that as we do that, we would be humbled, and we would be drawn closer to God. Let me pray for us. God, I do ask that you would uh, just help us to see ourselves the way you see us by, uh, by us just taking a look at your son and the way that you love us and, the, and what it takes for us to be made right with you. And I pray that, uh, that, God, you would humble us. It's so easy to think that we know what's best. It's so easy to think that we have things figured out or that we should be in control. And, uh, and God, I, it's just not going to do it for us. It's not going to bring us close to you. It's not going to give us a life that's uh, satisfied or fulfilling. Or, and it's not going to make us who we ought to be, which is right with you. And God, we just pray for humility in our hearts. And we just pray that we would uh, see you as you really are and that, um, 
we would see ourselves as we really are by looking at what you say about us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.